everybody, and welcome back to the wildly popular, much-beloved Derek Hunter podcast. My name is Dean Carianis, filling in for the big man himself. I am a former Rush Limbaugh staffer, a refugee from Fox News Channel, let's call it, as well as a contributor at various print news outlets and a columnist at the New York Sun. I haven't been writing much this month. I've been relatively unproductive as far as the printed word, but I've been swamped with other great opportunities, such as the one to come spend some time with all of you this week. I would not miss it for the world. Remember to support the show at DerekHunter.Locals.com and at Patreon.com slash DerekHunterPodcast. The start date today is Thursday, October 26th of 2023, my birthday. And it's a birthday I share with Hillary Clinton, Natalie Merchant of 10,000 Maniacs fame. And it's also the anniversary of the shootout at the OK Corral, a story that's become this big legend. And there's so many things that have been wrong about it, so many things in films and in stories that people have just decided to play with creatively. The actual shootout took maybe 30 seconds it was very short this little blip and people moved on but it's become this incredible legend those of you interested in that bit of history the shootout at the ok corral i'd encourage you to watch or listen to my history author show interview with victoria wilcox her book is the world of doc holiday history and historic images it's one of the most popular ones on youtube i mentioned yesterday vicksburg And that interview with Donald L. Miller was one of the most popular. That one was audio only. This one, I had a lot of fun bringing some old photographs to everybody in my audience and showing exactly what Victoria Wilcox is talking about in her book and what the world of Doc Holliday would really have been like away from the myth, away from the man who people think was this big killer and was a guy who was going to shoot you. And I have to give a shout out to my buddy Mojo for saying the other day in the middle of sixth avenue i'm your huckleberry i didn't think you had it in you i'm your huckleberry why johnny ringo you look like somebody just walked over your grave and boy if you saw that film way back when val kilmer at the height of his powers just such a charismatic guy, just did such a wonderful job as Doc Holliday. And to this day, people, fans of Doc Holliday, still want Val Kilmer to play him. They think nobody else could ever play him as well, despite the fact that time has ravaged him as it does us all. He can no longer speak Val Kilmer. They want him to play. That's the only Doc Holliday they're willing to accept, which is a great credit to Val Kilmer's acting abilities. You can find that interview at historyauthor.com. And while I'm plugging myself, you can also follow me at History Dean on Twitter. Please do visit me. I would love to add you to my audience and to my readership at the New York Sun and wherever my adventure takes me next. Wednesday night, last night, by the time you're hearing this, I attended the Alga Miners 10th Annual J100 Gala with famed activist Natan Sharansky, the actor Dean Kane, chess master Gary Kasparov, Ambassador Gilead Erdan, who is Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations, and philanthropist Urit Trat. With Israel in the headlines, it's been easy to forget what's going on in Ukraine. The war has dragged on now a lot longer than the smart people said it would. Certainly longer than if their leader, Zelensky, had taken President Biden's offer to just fly him out of there. 
And I think it was pretty good that the guy said, hey, I'm not going to fly. I don't need a plane. I need some guns. I'm going to stay and fight. So good for him. And yet again, can you imagine, especially when you listen to President Biden talk about this today, how he's not going to give an inch to those reds and he's willing to risk nuclear war. Isn't it horrible? We always go to that stereotypical Southern redneck accent to to talk about people like that. But gosh, he's better red than dead, Joe Biden. He, they mocked Ronald Reagan in his farewell speech and in his speech at the Republican convention in 88 because he said not an inch of territory has been lost to communism during my presidency. And now I, I want to know where this Joe Biden was, where any of these Democrats were when we were trying to fund the Contras or when we were trying to fund South Vietnam, the Republic of Vietnam. Did you know, and this is something we wrote about in a New York Sun editorial, Joe Biden voted against giving funds even to get Americans out of Vietnam. He wanted to just leave them there. That's what that vote tells me. Not only did he not want to continue to support the Republic of South Vietnam, but he wanted to leave Americans there. He didn't want to give another dime for it. And now, man, he's willing to bankrupt the country in the support of democracy, or so he says. Well, better late than never, I guess. Welcome to the fight. But as for Ukraine tomorrow, I'm hoping to have a surprise guest that will be bringing you one of my colleagues who recently spent some time reporting in Ukraine. And I really hope she'll be able to join us. Her name is Clara Prey Durier, and she is really doing amazing work. I think I'm at the age where I admire young people who I see giving me hope for the future. And that's what her work there did. She really had to push to get there, to get sent there. It's a war zone, of course. The sun doesn't want to lose anybody. A lot of journalists are saying, well, let's move on. The story's over. Let's find the next story. I think it was great that Clara went there. So hopefully we can get her on the air tomorrow. And I would also recommend to you go read some of her things at the New York Sun. I'll tweet a couple of those out today in preparation for that. So you can easily go find them at History Dean. And we'll find out what it's really like there on the ground from somebody who's honestly trying to report not just trying to add something to her resume. She was already quite accomplished before she decided to go and do this. Abima Speakerum. I don't know, I don't speak Latin, but that sounds pretty good. That's my version of Abemus Papum. When they have a Pope in the Catholic Church, I'm also not Catholic, so I may not get that right. In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church is still questioning, still a little bit dark about the fact that the Catholic Church didn't come to our aid when we were trying to save Constantinople from the Turks back 400 years ago. So <laughs> you'll have to forgive me for getting my Latin a little wrong, but gosh, it's great to have that drama over. You may be able to hear in the background that I'm outside because I decided why not I'll let the lovely and talented Mrs. Cariana sleep inside because I'm recording this at just about midnight, which is when Derek usually puts up the podcast, but I just got back from that Alga Minor dinner and what an inspiring event it really makes you understand about pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. I'm also going to be writing a New York Sun column on that if I don't pass out of sleep here because that was a place that gave me a lot of grist for the mill, especially the denunciations of the New York Times and their biased reporting against the state of Israel and for Hamas. I... I'm not sure how much of what I recorded before I'm going to keep, but I mentioned in there that the AP, the Associated Press, has decided to ban the use of the word terrorist to describe Hamas. So what do you think that means? What are they thinking? If you can't call terrorists terrorists, and I don't know why you're 
bothering to be in the news business. They're clearly terrorists. Terrorists has a meaning. And by the way, it's not every single Islamist, Islamist terrorist either. This was a term that was used, believe it or not, back at the turn of the 20th century to describe anarchists. Everybody knows what it means. And I'll tell you, if they can run around calling Republicans and anyone they don't like a terrorist, then sure as heck, they should call the people who are actually butchering children terrorists. I heard some firsthand accounts tonight at the Alga Minor dinner of people who escaped that music festival, for instance. There is no doubt what they face there is terrorism. They're holding hostages, and the idea that we have people that are standing up for them, supporting them. I understand that people want a better life for the people in Gaza who are peace-loving, if you can find them among the throngs of people there. No doubt there are some of them. But my gosh, Hamas, when you see them quote in the New York Times, a Hamas spokesman, only they call them a Palestinian health authority. Well, that's Hamas. Hamas is the governing body there of the Gaza Strip. And yet there's no credulity. And I look at what they write about just the opposition party and the Republicans here in the U.S., and it's always claims and says and far right. Has anyone ever said the far left Hamas or the far terrorist Hamas? I don't know how they would define them, but I assume because, of course, they do. Everyone bad has to be conservative. They will say conservative Muslims in Hamas. They don't even say that. They just take whatever they say at face value. And it is clear that's not the case. And it is very clear to me, especially after being at this Algaminer dinner tonight, that we have to stand with the forces of Western civilization. And it's definitely something that, as the acorns fall around me out here, and if you can hear the crickets chirping, I want this kind of peace for everybody in the world. It includes the people in Gaza. I shouldn't even have to say it. But certainly the people in Israel who just take as a matter of course that they're going to have missiles dropped on their heads in the middle of the night, in the middle of trying to sleep, in the middle of a music festival. Oh, it's no big deal. We accept it. And it's something that tonight the UN ambassador for Israel talked about. He said, we just thought we could wall off the evil and keep it away from us. But it's clearly not the case. They smash down those barriers and we have to go and destroy them. They feel in Israel they don't have, and they're right if you look at a map, the borders, the great oceans that the United States has to keep it keep evil away from them. We on 9-11 traveled halfway around the world to track down the people who perpetrated 9-11 in the hills of Afghanistan, the mountains of Afghanistan, and destroy them. Israel doesn't have that buffer. Israel knows exactly where its enemies are, and they are right there on the other side of a fence. It was really a special evening, and it was important for me because I'm not a guy who's big into virtue signaling. I'm not somebody who wants to have a bumper sticker or wear one of those ribbons. I'm sitting here at my fire pit that I built. Yes, I put all the stones together myself. I leveled all the ground myself, used a sod cutter that I rented, and cut it all out during the pandemic. <laughs> I had to keep busy. I wanted to improve the house a little. Contractor friend that I know said people discovered they had backyards after the pandemic. Built myself a nice stone circle here and a fire pit to go right in the middle of it. Stacked all those stones. So that's where I am talking to you tonight from. Also have my work shed here where I do a lot of my writing. And I like to think of myself as being in the line of Rod Serling. 
And if you love the Twilight Zone, as I always did growing up, please do check out my interview with Ann Serling, who wrote As I Knew Him, my father, Rod Serling. She was one of my most nervous guests, I guess. She was very nervous about coming on and talking about her book. So I talked a lot more than I usually do, coaxing her out. And Plus, I, I tend to talk too much between you and me when I do the interviews sometimes, especially something like that. I wanted to get so much out. But I saw there was a comment on the YouTube video for that History Author Show interview, and somebody said, Anne is a good listener. <laughs> but yeah, thanks a lot. If only you knew what goes into these interviews. There's a reason why I kept talking and why I was talking. I don't think I talked more than her, certainly, but there was a reason why, because she she was a nervous guest. It's hard to speak about your dad, and she loved him very much, wanted to do him justice. Definitely an interview to go check out. I don't know if you can hear the crickets out there, but the crickets are the only ones that seem to be out tonight with me. I'm fenced in here in my home, and I also built the fence, by the way. I am a man of many talents. I would encourage everyone to pursue other talents, especially in politics. We only need to look at Joe Biden, whose only job has ever been hate criming corn pop at a pool and running for office to see how important it is to get out there in the real world and get some experience. So Mike Johnson, who is Mike Johnson is the question the New York Times asks. The picture that they choose, I think, is very telling. It's a blurry picture. It's a picture of him just staring through little glasses, his head half hidden. There's some kind of lens flare on it. It's a bad picture. This is not the kind of picture you could expect for Hakeem Jeffries, for instance, if he ever becomes Speaker of the House. This is a shadowed, hidden picture, a dark guy. And guess what? The caption says exactly that. It says, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana's abrupt rise this week underscores the rightward lurch of the GOP. This is Annie Carney. Now, by the way, Annie, what kind of adult woman goes by Annie? But anyway, what's wrong with a rightward lurch, huh? You've had leftward lurches. I never recall the New York Times lamenting those or pointing those out. This is what happens in our democracy. This is what democracy looks like. Isn't that the slogan? I'm going to keep hammering that down. People go back and forth, and especially with a president who, in Joe Biden, has inflation going through the roof, who has the world aflame from the borders of Russia to the borders of Israel to potentially now Taiwan. He's asking for money for Taiwan, so he's expecting that to be the next war front. Maybe people would want to have a backlash. I never recall any complaints, of course, about the leftward backlash. But here begins the definition, the defining, the branding of Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, something I talked about in my first draft of the Derek Hunter Show before we knew Mike Johnson was going to win this election. The first line of this story is, when Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana wanted to make the case against abortion rights last year during a Capitol Hill committee hearing, he grilled a witness in graphic fashion. I have to say, as a writer, very good opening sentence, very good opening paragraph. But can you just maybe not be so completely in the tank? You're going to see they call Mike Johnson all kinds of names. He's an extremist. He's far right. He's against rights. He's against abortion rights. Uh, this is something I know President Trump said at some point. If Republicans want to be pro-life, they're going to have to learn to talk about 
abortion. They're going to have to learn to talk about the rights of the unborn, to put the babies at the front of their argument. Otherwise, go ahead and be pro-choice with Democrats. Otherwise, you're not making your case if you let people say it is just about one life if you truly believe that it is about true life, if you truly believe it is about two lives. Mike Johnson, the New York Times quotes here, asked the shocking question, do you support the right of a woman who is just seconds away from birthing a healthy child to have an abortion? Now, this is something for everybody out there who loves to talk about Europe and how behind America is. You won't see that. Europe has laws that nobody ever really looks at. I urge you to go, please look at them if you wish to have this debate with people, which most people on the right do not wish to. But we're talking about a living baby. We're talking about just that little couple of centimeters of skin between that infant and the world. This is not an extreme question. And he's asking here a doctor. And it's fascinating to me when doctors become these sacrosanct figures that you are not able to question and when they are just evil members of the medical establishment denying people health care letting them die on the floor of the operating room because they cannot get payment because there's no health insurance and we act as if obamacare never happened of course when we make that argument but suddenly this woman who manifestly makes money off of performing abortions gets asked this question and it is horrible she claims it doesn't happen at her, her practice, the New York Times quotes her. And Johnson fired back, of course. He didn't just ask a question, he fired back. And I will pause for a moment and point out something we do not do in the New York Sun. It is in the style book. And also, it's a sign of bad writing when you have to juice up the speech tags like that. Just tell me what the man said. He said, never happened in your practice, ma'am, but it happens. How about if a child is halfway out of the birth canal, is an abortion permissible then? Now, I would argue that if you're trying to drive this point home, and I'm just speaking as somebody who understands how words work, I would have said, I would have used much stronger, much more maybe extreme language there if you want to make your point. Why not? The other side is doing it. You guys either want to fight for your ideals or you don't. And they mentioned that he had deeply conservative views, particularly on social issues. Oh, sure. Okay. Again, only only Republicans have those. Only right-wing extremists have those. Not people on the left. Eh, they could take their deeply they could take their deeply liberal views and leave them or take them or eh, they're fine. Yeah, not not something you would ever possibly hear. In fact, if you try to leave some of those ideas behind, you'll get very quickly excommunicated and punished. You must toe the line. And they mention, of course, he's an evangelical Christian. <gasps> we can't have those people in there. Oh, my God. But why, the guy might pray. The guy might believe in a power bigger than man. The guy might be loyal to something, pray to something greater than government. He may think this crazy extremist evangelical Christian lunatic that there's life after death death and you will be judged on what you do <gasps> he is an evil man don't you understand if you read the new york times then you go to the new republic where you would expect of course these guys are liberals of good standing they believe in the left-wing agenda again another picture of the new speaker mike johnson from half profile 
head down. He's kind of glaring a little bit at the camera. Those round glasses that he has, he just doesn't look happy. This time it's blurry in the background. And the headline is, Republicans' new speaker, once called LGBTQ people, destructive. <gasps> and then they presume to identify this as homophobia. He has a long history. You ever notice Republicans only have a long history of anything? There's never just, hey, there was this one-off time they did something. It's always a long history. And they presume to define it as homophobia. You know, to tie this into the whole Israel thing and Hamas, do you think Hamas has a long history of homophobia? In fact, of homocide? I probably can't say that. You're not supposed to, but <laughs> it sounds like a pretty good little line there. And I think if I was writing one of my columns, I would fight for that with the editors to try to get that in. What the heck? They're the ones who are extreme, and they're the ones who are homophobic. In fact, they're killing gay people. And you have people marching around. I probably, if I clicked around here in the New Republic, I'd find more things, more examples of how people in Hamas are openly supporting the execution of anyone, not only gays, not only Jews, but anyone who doesn't adhere to their warped, twisted view of Islam. But here, let's focus on Johnson. Johnson's homophobia. And they, this is a great line, too. The breadcrumbs of Johnson's homophobia. <gasps> Don't you see? He's hiding it. He's secret. He's walking out there in the woods with Hansel and Gretel. Why? I think out here, right in the middle of the night, I can see him if I look just carefully enough out there into the night here at 12, 13 a.m. I can maybe see Mark. I could maybe see Mike Johnson crawling around in the woods, looking around, leaving breadcrumbs to his homophobia. I don't know what homophobic breadcrumbs look like, but I think we should be able to Talk about this guy without identifying him that way, branding him that way. But, of course, you can't expect that from the media. Let's look now at NBC News. NBC News lists five things to know about Mike Johnson. Who is Mike Johnson, they ask. And then they will hopefully tell you. The little-known Louisianan. Well, is it your job to know who these people are in the house? Mike Johnson's not. A total unknown. Mike Johnson's done some national TV. He's done some of the second-rate talk radio shows that I've been talking about out there. He's not little known. He may be little known to you, but see, that's a that's one of those ways. If you pick apart every word as I do, automatically in my head, they're already trying to say this guy's an unknown. And by setting it up in your head, you foolish reader of NBC don't know who this guy is. We will tell you. So they've flushed out your mind, and then they're going to presume to tell you who this guy was. They say he won on the first ballot. This is in the first sentence. It says, the little-known Louisianan who won on the first ballot, this is the subhead, rallied objections to the 2020 election certification, won Trump's hedge support, and has a solidly conservative voting record. That kind of thing is factually correct. I would say it's probably the best of the stories here that I've read is the NBC News story. So good on them. Took four people to write this, though. It's <laughs> just surprising as somebody who's sitting here talking to you, find people, and then I'm about to write my own column by myself here at my fire pit. Don't need three other people to tell me what to think about Mike Johnson. And also four 
reporters for NBC and none of them know who the guy is. They all are willing to use this headline that nobody knows who he is. He's little known. Shouldn't one of you know who the hell Mike Johnson is? But it's good. It's good that this guy is going to be speaker. It's hopefully going to avoid some of the damage that was done way back when with the Speaker of the House fight in 1910. And that was something I wrote about in a column that I published on October 5th, 2023, after McCarthy's flame out. The the subject of that was, good grief, Kevin McCarthy learns a hard lesson about Democrats and political nihilism. The ex-speaker is accusing Nancy Pelosi of breaking a promise to help save his job. It's a reminder that bipartisanship has its limits. And in this piece, I started by saying a unanimous Democratic caucus joined eight Republicans in voting Tuesday to vacate the speaker's chair. The following day, the now former Speaker, Representative Kevin McCarthy, said he believed that Democrats who said they wanted to keep the government open, that's a quote, would have rewarded his doing so by voting to preserve his speakership. Well, shocker. (laughs) They did not do so. I wrote that McCarthy told the press on Wednesday that after Republicans won the majority last year, he confided in Speaker Pelosi that he was having, quote, issues with getting enough votes, unquote, to be leader because some members wanted to restore a rule allowing one person to call a no-confidence vote on the Speaker. McCarthy said of Ms. Pelosi, I had the power to call the vote on her, but I never would. I lost some votes because of it. And she said, just give it to them. And there he means that rule that ultimately doomed him that one member could call a no-confidence vote. I'll always back you up, Pelosi said. And Mr. McCarthy's telling Ms. Pelosi said she made the same offer to the two previous Republican speakers because I believe in the institution. Mr. McCarthy called the decision to vote with objecting Republicans, quote, a political decision by Democrats. Well, no kidding. How did this guy, I know he dreamed of being speaker. He's a political animal, you would think. How did he think that the other party would do anything less than what was political? And why isn't he doing the same? It's called politics for a reason. It's a democracy. That is putting it charitably, I said of his statement. It brings to mind the running gag in the Peanuts comic strip where Lucy Van Pelt played over and over the same trick, promising to hold the football for Charlie Brown, only to yank it away at the last second. And the son did something cool here. They just put the two words, good grief, over their own sentence by themselves. The first time one felt sorry for poor Chuck. But sympathy evaporated after decades in which Charlie kept landing flat on his back. This is the fate that could befall the GOP. Mr. McCarthy wanted to keep the government open, which lined up with Democratic interests, so they supported him then. And then I talked about that revolt for the Speaker against the Speaker in March of 1910, when Republicans who the Sun dubbed insurgents joined with the Democratic minority to humble another Republican Speaker, His name was Joseph Uncle Joe Cannon. And since we're talking about Joe Cannon, I want to mention the Sagamore Hill National Historic Site. If you go down to the Apple Orchard, that is, uh, I don't know, about a mile or half a mile, mile from Theodore Roosevelt's house, you find another house. And this was the house that was owned by Ted Roosevelt Jr., Theodore Roosevelt's oldest son. And he always thought he was going to move into Sagamore Hill once his mother passed away. And his mother, much like Queen Elizabeth for King Charles, kept holding on, kept living. And 
good for her. So he built his own house there in the apple orchard, and it's today a museum. And in that museum, one of the items that they have is a cannon that Theodore Roosevelt named Joe Cannon, inspired by the Speaker of the House. And there's also a portrait of TR yelling at Cannon, lecturing the Speaker of the House. So if you're ever in Oyster Bay, Long Island, go ahead and check that out. That's how I think when I think of Joe Cannon, or that's who I think of when I think of Joe Cannon. So a guy who is very powerful, very controversial, which they say now usually only used for conservatives, of course. Also a word banned in the New York Sun style book because it's pretty meaningless because you assume anybody who is in political life will have said something at some point that causes controversy. That's why we are all here. So the Sun wrote at the time in 1910, and did I mention that the Sun was publishing before the New York Times? It goes back to all the way to 1833. The Sun wrote that the insurgents will take advantage of every opportunity to embarrass Mr. Cannon and his organization is now evident to the leaders, meaning the Republican leaders. Democrats joined the disgruntled Republicans in a surprise move, stripping Cannon of his seat on the powerful rules committee. Now, at the time, speakers were able to be on committees. That's no longer the case, partially because of this insurrection, as they called it. So they wanted a humble and they wanted a cut Cannon down to size. So that's what they did. And the son described Cannon as humiliated, but he refused to hand over the gavel. He said, without a motion to vacate the speakership, I'm staying. I'm sitting my fat ass right here in the speaker's chair. And unlike McCarthy, the vote to remove him fell short. So Cannon got to keep his butt in that cozy seat. But it was only for a few months because guess what? Democrats rode the chaos that they'd helped orchestrate their first majority in 16 years. And I tell you, I wish it was the old days of Rush Limbaugh where Cookie Gleason over on the TV side would where Cookie Gleason over on the radio side, rather, would go ahead and make a nice montage of all the people in the media who are using that same word, that same chaos. And I'll tell you, Republicans could spin this, and maybe I'll pitch a column about this, but if I was them, I would be saying, hey, this is not chaos. What is it that you guys say on the other side? This is what democracy looks like. I think it's great that we're not just saying next guy in the establishment up, next guy who's in the line for leadership up, or woman if you want to talk about Elise Stefaniak, Elise Stefanik, rather. Hey, it's late. I'm outside with crickets. Don't criticize my pronunciation. <laughs> but that's what I would do. I would say this is fine. This is what happens sometimes. Look, we're eventually going to get a speaker. Everybody chill. I don't see anybody who is pushing that. I don't see anybody who is out there saying, Hey, everybody relax. Fortunately, now they actually have a speaker, but it took way too long and there was absolutely no pushback. They languished for all this time. Mike Johnson has his job cut out for him. I wrote in the sun, even President Reagan fell for the Lucy trick. He signed an amnesty bill for 3 million persons who were in the country illegally on the condition that Democrats pass stronger border enforcement. Well, guess what? Shocker. The Democrats failed to deliver on that. Remember that because you're going to hear a lot more about Reagan granted amnesty, Ronald Reagan granted amnesty, you let the people's day. Yeah, of course, suddenly you have something nice to say about Reagan, which you absolutely positively never do. 
because you interpret it and frame it as him doing something he wanted, but it was not the case. He made sure people came in the legal way and he expected and demanded, and the Democrats agreed to, stronger border security, which they never, ever delivered. And he had no choice. I think it's a lesson for House Republicans. Reagan only had one House of Congress for most of his presidency. He had the Senate for, I think, two years. And other than that, the House really has all the power, certainly the power of the purse. So he had to deal. He had no choice. Maybe he was willfully gullible. But he was the one that started that line about get half the loaf if you can't get the whole loaf. And you come back for the second half of the loaf tomorrow. In 1982, when Reagan sought to reduce taxes, the speaker at the time, Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, a big Massachusetts Democrat, he wanted what? Well, the thing that every leftist goes to sleep dreaming about, more of your money so that they can do things with it. And they don't call it that. They call it tax increases. They don't call it you having to work more for the government than you work for yourself. So Tip O'Neill wanted that. Reagan wanted to get it passed. They struck a compromise. O'Neill would cut $3 in spending in the House for every dollar in taxes hiked. Reagan went for it, and guess what? Tip O'Neill broke his word. Color me shocked. And in 1990, his party teed up the same football for Reagan's successor. Congressional Democrats told President George H.W. Bush that they'd cut $2 in spending for every $1 of taxes increased. I guess they figure if they said 3 to 1 again that he might recognize what had happened two years before. But here comes George H.W. Bush, going to kick the football. Here I go, going to run, going to kick it. Can't let the football sit there. Would not be prudent. So he goes for it. Maybe if it had been baseball, he'd be better. He was, of course, captain of the Yale baseball team. There he goes. He passes $139 billion in tax hikes. And guess what? The House sent spending skyrocketing. All those Democrats who'd applauded Bush, who'd embraced him there when he signed the pledge, who embraced him when he signed the bill, rather, raising taxes, totally happy to stab him in the back and change it. And they did so in an even more personal way because Democrats promised that if Bush broke that famous pledge he made in his nomination speech at the Republican National Convention, read my lips, no new taxes, they said, we won't use it against you. Don't worry, Mr. President. We'll, we'll, we'll just let you get away with it. We'll say you did the right thing. Just go ahead and do the right thing. Well, they didn't refrain from using it against them. In fact, they used it as a club, and they beat this war hero over the head with it. And they had a guy do it, and Bill Clinton, who himself, not that George H.W. Bush would never say it, wouldn't be prudent, but the guy was a draft dodger, and George H.W. Bush was a hero of the war. And you can guarantee that if the situation was reversed, we would hear nothing but what a hero Bill Clinton had been. But no, 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 Bush wasn't going to do that. They were from a different generation that didn't bring that kind of thing up as compared to John Kerry, who, of course, even though George W. Bush volunteered to fight in Vietnam, another thing he didn't bring up don't ask me why i cannot explain it but he served in the national guard of course but kerry was supposedly this big war hero from a war that democrats hated in fact joe biden at the time in the senate voted against funds to evacuate americans from vietnam 
And we're not talking about just that he voted against funds to support South Vietnam. He voted against getting out American citizens, voted to just leave them there at the tender mercies of the Viet Cong. This is the guy now who, better dead than red, not an inch of territory will be given up to those evil Ruskies. Well, welcome to the party, pal, as John McClane says in Die Hard. Where were you when we needed funding to stop the Contras in Central America? Where were you when we wanted to keep the Republic of South Vietnam? Not that you ever went to Vietnam, of course, five-time draft dodger. I'm going to say that probably every time I, co I host for Derek because it's pretty important to me that nobody ever brings that up. But Bush fell for this. Bush 41, the first President Bush falls for it. Bill Clinton does the political thing. You can't blame him for doing it. He breaks the Democrats' word, and they beat the crap out of him with it. Call him a liar. This guy who was the youngest pilot in the Navy, youngest Navy pilot in World War II, savages him personally and drives him from the White House with it. And I, for the life of me, do not get why no Republican understands that to this day. There's no Republican who since then said, every time a Democrat comes to you, and asks you to raise taxes, tries to make a deal, why don't they point to this? Why don't they say, this is what you did to a war hero? I can imagine what you'll do to me. This guy stopped the Nazis, and you're going to come after me? Forget it. I'm, I'm sorry. You, you've lost your goodwill. You've lost that presumption of truth. You, Tip O'Neill, whoever you want to cite, instead they're determined to make deals with these leftist Democrats. I do not get it. Mr. McCarthy, I wrote in The Sun, is the latest officeholder to compromise and act on President Rutherford B. Hayes' sentiment. Hayes said he serves his party best, who serves his country best. That was in his inaugural address. That's 1877 after that incredibly disputed election. Nothing like recent ones that we have had. And that's a worthy ideal. It's a great thing. But it's one that I wrote in The Sun. On Washington's political gridiron, as I was going for that whole football theme, works only if your opponents are good sports, too. And that is so important. It's something that I hope that Mike Johnson is going to understand because he is going to get dumped right into the fire. They're already coming after him with these negative stories. You want to hear Bloomberg's headline. Bloomberg's headline is... Republicans pick some guy to be Speaker of the House. This is by Jessica Carl. She, she writes in the subhead, No, he's not the Mike Johnson who was on season 15 of The Bachelorette. Well, I don't know. If you're going to be a political columnist, an opinion columnist, maybe you should be more familiar with who is in the House of Representatives than who is on some lame-ass reality show. But... This is one way to go at it. Try to make the guy seem ridiculous. If you can't make him seem extreme, make him seem like he's some kind of fringe nut job, crazy person. Because as you know from The Godfather, a man in that kind of position cannot afford to be made to look ridiculous. Mike Johnson is, in any case, the 56th Speaker of the House. Good for him. Congratulations to him. He tweeted out, it's the honor of a lifetime to have been elected the 56th Speaker of the House. Thank you to my colleagues, friends, staff, and family for the unmatched support throughout this process. It has been an arduous few weeks and a reminder that the House is complicated and diverse as the people we represent. The urgency of this moment demands bold, decisive action to restore trust, advance our legislative priorities, and demonstrate good governance. Our House Republican Conference is united and eager to work. 
all good stuff so far. I think he hits the right note there. I think it's good to invoke trust. It's good to invoke the people a couple times and talk about good governance because that's what we want. We want to see governing here in the house. We don't want to just see going along to get along, which is great for fundraising, but not great for the country. As Speaker Mr. Johnson said, Speaker Johnson said, I will ensure the House delivers results and inspires change for the American people. We will restore trust in this body. We will advance a comprehensive conservative policy agenda, combat the harmful policies of the Biden administration. I would have hit the word a little harder than harmful, but this is right out of the gate. Maybe he wants to consolidate support and among people, the broadest number of people possible. I'll let him get away with it. I'll let it slide and support our allies abroad. Also there, he wants to, eh, a little bit too much to me, sliding a little bit into letting Biden run things. But again, only have half of the Congress uh, have don't have the Senate. So he's going to have to strike a very careful line here. And we will restore sanity to a government desperately in need of it. Let's get back to work. Well, I think that's pretty good. I think it's a good statement there out of the gate. You can expect, though, a lot of people are going to try to identify him. They're going to try to define him before he's able to define himself. That's something I spoke about earlier. So I'm going to go ahead and roll what I had already recorded here before I came to sit out with the crickets. Again, Mike Johnson, our new Speaker of the House. Let's all give him what support we can, give him a, an opportunity to make the best of this. It's been my observation that people in American history, leaders in American history, the gray ones are often the ones you don't expect, the ones that don't have the resumes, the ones that on paper would not be the ones you would expect to be great, and the ones with the great resumes like maybe Kevin McCarthy saw, thought he had or the ones that some of the other candidates who thought they were next in line had are not that good. A Jim Jordan, somebody like that, who he has, he checks all the conservative boxes. You look at our presidents and you'll be fascinated by how many had great resumes and flamed out. Herbert Hoover, John Quincy Adams, these guys had incredible resumes and they were two of our least successful presidents. Andrew Jackson, once in a single letter, spelled his own name five different ways. Not a great intellectual, not a guy with a huge resume. Abraham Lincoln, they called him an ape, this backwoodsman, this really uncouth guy, ends up being one of our greatest presidents. FDR, Herbert Hoover supported FDR in the Democratic primary. He wanted to run against him because he thought he was the weakest candidate. He was considered a lightweight. When he came down with polio, that's when people started to say, hey, this guy is not just some pampered Hyde Park patrician with the tweed arm patches. He finally went through some hard times in life. And as I discussed with David Petrusha, who, if you love presidential history, please do go check out my interviews with him. I've interviewed him six times. <laughs> so you know that I love talking to David Petrusha. I want to interview him again, too. His new book is Gangsterland. But FDR, he ends up being a great, successful president, president for life, in fact, because he refused to lay down the White House. He would not leave office in the middle of the war, decided he would stick his ass in that chair. And so that's exactly what he did. But still, nobody could have looked at his resume and knew that he was destined to be somebody who would be on a coin. This happens many times at Reagan, a guy who went to Eureka College, came from the middle of the country, an actor, as they love to say. Think of that Eureka College. I was stacking some of my firewood out here at the fire pit 
the other night, and I was just thinking of how he went to Eureka, and I don't know who the president would have been before him. All of our recent presidents, they go to the same schools. They think the same way. And even Donald Trump, of course, has an Ivy League degree. And you look at that and you say, maybe we need some people from the outside who think a little different. I think that's the opportunity that Mike Johnson has right now. I like that Mike Johnson was the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest caucus of conservatives in Congress. And they call it the intellectual arsenal of conservatism in the House. Well, that makes me happy to read. I, I would like some intellect. I'm tired of people talking down to me and to voters and just assuming that people will not get it because they're too lazy to make their cases. Mike is the son of a fireman in Shreveport, Louisiana. That sounds like a pretty cool job, doesn't it? Somebody who never is going to run around like certain people and tell you every sentence that their father was a mailman. Let's hope that Mike Johnson is not in that John Kasich mode. Uh, he was critically burned, unfortunately, and disabled in the line of duty was Mike Johnson's father. These are the kind of stories that watch very carefully. See if you spot that in any of this reporting about him and his new speakership. Mike has been a college college professor, conservative talk show host, talk radio host, and columnist. Well, come on. It's like making me speaker of the house, except I won't have as many digressions into big trouble and little China jokes. And I'm Greek, of course, which automatically makes me better at the job because we invented democracy, so we know how to run this thing. He was a media spokesman for America's largest religious liberty organization, a constitutional law seminar instructor, and a board member for, the, for national organizations and numerous community groups and ministries. Sounds like a pretty straight down the line guy, but I wanted to get right here to he went to Louisiana State University. He graduated there with a doctorate, a Juris Doctorate in 1998, which tells you the guy is definitely not somebody who's from the usual channels there who graduate people. I think it's pretty good that he went to LSU. His wife is a former school teacher and she is a licensed pastoral counselor. I don't know how they license you for those, but that sounds pretty good. I think if ever my wife loses total patience with me, I would like somebody who was a licensed pastoral counselor. Sounds like you couldn't do any harm, right? Certainly better than somebody who's going to tell me to go in one of those balls and yoga dealing with all that weird demonic Indian stuff and start screaming at clouds or beating drums or whatever. He's been married since 1999. They have four children together. Good for them. And today they live right there in Bozier Parish. I wonder if I pronounced that right. It's been a while since I've listened to Gambit in the old X-Men cartoon. But Louisiana, I think it's nice. We're going to get somebody who's not from California, not from one of the major states that you think of. Nothing against Louisiana. Certainly, New Jersey gets overlooked a lot where I graduated from Rutgers University. But I think this is a potential to be a very interesting thing. Mike Johnson has been called here by history to sound very pretentious. Really, history doesn't call anybody, and history also doesn't have a right and wrong side. It's up to you to make that. We have right and wrong choices morally, but those are not decided by history itself. It's not a person that you call that always agrees with you. But anyway, I think Congressman Johnson, Speaker Johnson, now this is going to be very interesting. So let me leave you from the crickets here because they're probably getting tired of hearing me talk. And I'll go back to some of the other things I recorded before we found out this news. Again, 
Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana is your new Speaker of the House. Get your T-shirts and hats and maybe even your tattoos ready because I think this guy has some real potential if he's able to rise to this moment. And he's about to be the highest profile Republican in opposition to President Biden, the only one in the federal government with anything like his power. He will represent as many people as the president of the United States, the way our country is set up. He's basically a prime minister. So good luck to you, Mike Johnson. We're pulling for you here on the Republican side. Let's see some action and good luck to your family too. You may need that licensed pastoral counselor because you're about to have the anal exam of anal exams, as Russ used to say, all your entire family is. Gee, I was saying so many nice things about parishes and pastors and the guys at Christian, and then I had to go bring anal into it. Well, sorry about that. You'll forgive me, won't you? Anyway, here's what I recorded before. This is all still very relevant to this, especially in my prescient comments about what's ahead for Mike Johnson. Brother, can I buy a speaker? House Republicans still struggling to elect somebody to lead the lower chamber of Congress. I find this really absurd. I find this a betrayal of all the people who were out there ringing doorbells, who got up to vote when they felt sick, who donated money to these candidates, the small donations, a dollar, five dollars, a hundred dollars, money they couldn't afford, that they donated to try and build a bulwark to President Biden's agenda. They went, they voted, they knocked on doors, they argued with friends, they drove people to the polls, they did all the things that the Republican Party asks them to do to help them get that majority in the House. And now what are they doing with it? This is just a few holdouts. How can you not be able to vote for the Republican candidate? You can't find anybody? This is really not a great thing, but I think it's a good way to spin it if Republicans care to, but of course they don't care to spin. They're, they're really not into that. I don't know what they're into, but it's very strange. Well, I don't get this at all. I thought Lil' Pan- Shut up, Mr. Burton. You are not brought upon this world to get it. Ah, yes, the sweet Lil' Pan, David Lil' Pan, played by the legendary actor James Hong. He's been an actor for over seven decades, an incredible career that he has had. That's 1986's Big Trouble in Little China. The film starred Kurt Russell as Jack Burton, although whether he was really the star of the film, the hero of the film, or just a sidekick in that movie is something that is often pondered out there. Go ahead and bring that up with somebody who loves that movie, and those people won't be hard to find, and ask yourself about that. Ask yourselves, was he really the hero of that film, or was he just a sidekick? It's a very fun way to get into that movie, get a new layer from it. You're going to end up watching Big Trouble in Little China right after you have this conversation. It's a movie that's really precious to me. I always enjoyed it. But back to trying to explain the House Republicans. I do not get it, but you are not brought upon this world to get it, Mr. Burton. And Mr. Carianis, Lopan could tell me the same thing. I think once you free yourself of that assumption that you can somehow wrap your mind around this, you'll be able to look at these Republicans in Congress and accept that some things are just not explainable. Republicans acting in a way that only benefits the other side, it seems to just make no sense. Betraying all of those voters that went and voted and gave that money, rang those doorbells, shook those hands, the candidates even that lost, in many cases, were people who drained resources away from Democratic candidates, from the Democrat House committees that are in charge of trying to elect people and parceling out money. And also, let's not forget 
all those talk radio hosts who spent a year, the way they seem to look at it, killed a year of time, promising a red wave that never happened. But the red wave didn't really matter, did it, whether or not it happened, because they weren't out there every day talking about topics and trying to persuade and really pushing ideas. They were pushing candidates, certainly, but not pushing ideas, not trying to persuade. They promised that red wave was in the bag, right? And they sold lots of lots of sweet, sweet live reads on that premise while their ratings skyrocketed. Then, of course, election day came and election night came. And guess what? No red wave, but they just picked up the next day like nothing had happened. Them, I don't feel sorry for, but I do feel sorry for all the people who worked so hard to get a Republican majority in the House who are now seeing months wasted by the Republicans there that they helped elect. I guess feeling sorry for them is probably the wrong way to say it. I'm angry on their behalf. They deserve better. The Republic deserves better than this silliness. One of the things about President Trump that's been a knock against him is that the guy has a hard time governing because he's a newcomer. That was always a positive for him. Well, if the Congress can't govern and we have yet another debt showdown coming up, debt ceiling showdown, how do we expect people to give Republicans the keys? It shouldn't be that hard. Name a speaker and you're set. Little baby steps. I know this is something Derek has talked about. And it's something Ronald Reagan talked about way back when. He was the one that started that idea. You can't get the whole loaf. You get half the loaf today. You come back later. Well, they got half the Congress. And instead of executing their jobs, they're letting a bunch of people who want to get those sweet, sweet clicks and those sweet, sweet donations by standing up for they don't quite know what and have no plan for what comes after. The only person that they're helping or the only people they're helping are the opposition. What are you hearing on the news? Chaos in the house, chaos in the house. I miss the old days when Cookie Gleason over at the Rush radio side would have put together a nice montage of everybody saying chaos, 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 chaos. Nobody thinks to do that today that I have heard. Talk radio is a bit of a lost art, except right here on the Derek Hunter podcast. There's a way to spin that as a good thing. Republicans should be saying what Democrats say. This is what democracy looks like. I don't know why they don't have anyone who can message worth a damn anymore, but they do not. So they are not. They're not saying this is what democracy looks like. They are not saying, well, we're not in lockstep, mind-numbed robots like the Democrats are. It's good to vet as many candidates as possible. It's good to not just put the next legacy guy in line to be the leader of the House. It's important to us that we don't go with the same old people. There's endless ways to spin this as a positive. They're doing none of them. The latest candidate for the Republicans is Mike Johnson of Louisiana. I have to refrain from calling him a sacrificial lamb. The guy's putting himself out there and he'll probably fall. But in any case, don't expect the Democrats to be waiting to already brand this guy, to already define him, to already paint a picture of him in the minds of the American people. They're not going to wait for that. They're going to capitalize on the fact that Republicans will be forced to find somebody on the back bench to take that opportunity to define him in a way that they couldn't as easily Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy was more well-known. He was more of a known commodity to people. Not much of one, but a lot of people do watch cable news. But whoever they pick, this is what you're going to hear. This is the Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. And he's talking to Ari Melber at the far-left Citizens for American Progress Cap 20 event. See how easy that was to slip in far-left? The guy's far-left. Every single Republican is right-wing extreme conservative, ultra conservative. It seems like a small thing, but if Republicans could master the qualifier, they would do much better. Anyway, here's Ari Melber and Hakeem Jeffries. 
When you look at today, you're about to go take this vote. There's these rumblings that maybe today they will have the numbers. Um, what can you tell us about that? Obviously, you don't want to scoop yourself. We'll go follow it today. But what can you tell us about that, about your working relationship with their newest nominee, their potential speaker? Well, Mike Johnson, uh, who's their newest uh, nominee, has a very uh, pleasant demeanor in terms of how he communicates, but his voting record uh, is as extreme as the most extreme members of their conference, with very few exceptions. Uh, and I think, you know, what we'll see is that if they are able to get to the number they need to get to today, 217, um, you know, that Mike Johnson is someone who, like Kevin McCarthy, like Steve Scalise, like Jim Jordan, uh, voted to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Uh, that Mike Johnson, similar to all of those individuals, has a track record of trying to undermine Social Security and Medicare and end these incredibly important things that are connected to the fabric of our country uh, and end them as we know it. That, that Mike Johnson, probably more so than almost any other member of the House Republican Conference, wants to criminalize abortion care and impose a nationwide ban. So later on today, we'll make clear that we will continue to forcefully push back against that extremism. Ari Melber, another little bit of branding here. You figure other kids when he was little called him Toast? The fine art of nicknames seems to have disappeared, but I cannot imagine not calling him Melber Toast. He was born in 1980. That's pretty much perfect timing. That's, that's the golden age of Melba Toast. Put those things in people's mind and you define them. You don't let them define you. If you know the story of Miracle, the Miracle on Ice in 1980, the U.S. hockey team, they were going up against the Red Army team. Fully grown adults, guys who did nothing but play hockey. So five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in Miracle? Yes! Unbelievable. Her Brooks knew he had to break the fear and the awe that his young players had of the Soviet coach of the team. His name was Viktor Tikhonov. And if you're by a computer, go ahead and look up a picture of him. Because what Herb Brooks did was something that had to do with branding that Republicans aren't very good at anymore. Coach Brooks said that Coach Tikhonov looked like Stan Laurel. We're not so far in the future that people have forgotten Laurel and Hardy, but that was 1980. He was even fresher in people's memories. And you can't be afraid of a guy like Stan Laurel. He was always the weepy little guy. He was not in any way threatening. That's why you do that kind of thing, because that has a real impact. And it's a silly little thing, and people could say it's petty and don't call people names. Well, if it wasn't effective, they wouldn't care if you called them names. But you can identify them that way. And this is not something people in the House should be doing, but you have plenty of people, all those people I mentioned that are out there knocking on doors, that are writing columns, that are making appearances on cable news. They can do some of that branding to take the mythos. The British have a saying, take the piss out of somebody, right? <laughs> they had that accent they could get away with saying it. But that's what they're going to do to any backbencher on the Democratic side, whoever ends up being speaker. You heard there, Akeem Jeffries, dark tones, serious tones. He's smart enough not to make fun of them. He's just going to define it as horrible for democracy. They're always going to say the same thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he had this all written down and just knows to read and plug in the name of the latest Republican candidate. But they don't really need to write it down because they know what to say about every Republican and unfortunately, Republicans don't quite seem to know what to say about every Democrat, although they're happy to say bad things about their fellow Republicans, which seems kind of weird that some of them would do that. I remember back in March of 2011, 
Now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was on a conference call to fellow Democrats, and they left the press on by mistake. I believe they were supposed to cut the press off. They forgot to do so, left them on, and they heard this strategy session. And Schumer said, I always use the word extreme. That is what the caucus instructed me to use this week. And this was something he also talked about in an Amtrak train once where somebody overheard him. And there was no audio of that. I don't recall there was. And he said the same thing. Just use extreme. I always call Republicans extreme. I always call Republicans extreme. Where are Republicans calling Democrats extreme? I don't know. And there's plenty of things. If you're just going to throw these words around, the battle of the qualifiers, you need to join that battle. You need to join that battle, Republicans. Stop squabbling among yourselves. What is your goal? If your goal is to govern, this ain't the way you do it. As I thought about this branding and this extreme that they use all the time, the Democrats to describe any Republican, I was reminded how old that term is as a political weapon and also reminded how old I am. Half my life ago, I guess, this next clip comes from. This is a clip from Rush Limbaugh, the television show. This is a bit that I came up with in one of the meetings when we were rolling a clip by Vic Fazio. He was a Democrat out of California. And Congressman Fazio here had said in a clip we played to set up this bit, we are going to get to the essence of the extremism of the Republicans in Congress. And this is what we followed with after some of those warbly dream lines that you use as a transition if you're a real television editor. Check out how little times have changed and how much things have stayed the same, including my attitude, because you're also going to hear my voice in this bit. Introducing new essence of extremism, Cologne. I love your scent. Thank you. Are you a Republican? Yes, I am. Do you want to starve my grandmother and poison my water? Yes. Yes, I do. I love that. Between Marxist and Draconian lies the essence of extremism. Essence of extremism. Available at Nutstrom's and sensible stores everywhere. If you want to watch that video, it is on some random guy's YouTube channel where he just stole it and he did something that drives me nuts. He put his own watermark on it. <laughs> it's as if he made it. I haven't done anything about YouTube, but when people take other people's content and just stick a watermark on as if they invented it because they don't want anyone to steal it from them, it always cracks me up. But that just came from one of our production meetings at the TV show. You may have heard over the years that Rush said he hated meetings. Well, he liked our meetings. He would do them four days a week. He would shoot two shows on Friday, so the Thursday one had to be a little longer. This is after doing three hours on the radio, on the EIB network, and also when he first came to New York, he had to do three hours of just local talk for WABC in order for them to carry the station because you had to be in New York, of course. So think about what a long day that is, six hours on the radio, then he would come and do the television show. And by the way, he would stay and talk to the audience after sign every single book, shake every hand of anybody who wanted to come and meet him. He was the hardest working man in show business right after the Godfather, James Brown. And I, I only put in, and I only put in that qualifier because I heard Rush's voice in my head saying, no, no, you, you can't put me above the Godfather. I don't care if I'm gone, Coco Jr. You can't, you can't put me ahead. I was a Godfather of soul, James Brown. So we were just in a meeting one day and somebody played that clip of that sanctimonious, just 
dramatic, melodramatic Vic Fazio in that same tone I'd heard a million times, the essence of extremism. And I just said out loud, new essence of extremism, cologne. And that became the bit. And that's the wonderful way we used to produce stuff back there. And then you had people like The Daily Show see how funny news could be. And so they took that idea and they ran with it in the other direction. But everyone does seem to enjoy that kind of thing. And it was some great parodies we got to do. And we were routinely beating Letterman and Leno. And we had a whole lot of fun. And we had the Gingrich Revolution. And gosh, times were good back then. And Republicans seemed not only to know how to govern, but to want to govern. That all came to an end one night in 1998 when Newt Gingrich was out as speaker and Bob Livington was tabbed as his successor. Then Livingston had his own problem. Someone said, hey, he's having an affair, although he wasn't at that very moment engaged in extramarital sex. Uh, I guess it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Uh, remember that one? That was something that Clinton was saying and that they asked when he gave that deposition where he said that. Do you mean to say that because you're not having sex right now with that woman, that there's no there's no relationship? And that is, it's not happening right now. That was what his pitch was there. So Republicans had, had heard all this. And there was this moment, Livingston goes to the floor and he gives a speech. Democrats are booing him and, and they're saying, we can't have this guy. This guy's a hypocrite. How dare he talk about Clinton like this? This guy's not a good speaker. This is what it sounded like. But to the president, I would say, Sir, you have done great damage to this nation over this past year. And while your defenders are contending that further impeachment proceedings would only protract and exacerbate the damage to this country, I say that you have the power to terminate that damage and heal the wounds that you have created. You, sir, may resign your post. House will be in order. And, and, the House will be in order. And I can only challenge you in such fashion if I am willing to heed my own words. To my colleagues, my friends, and most especially my wife and family, I have hurt you all deeply and I beg your forgiveness. I was prepared to lead our narrow majority as speaker, and I believe I had it in me to do a fine job. But I cannot do that job or be the kind of leader that I would like to be under current circumstances. So I must set the example that I hope President Clinton will follow. I will not stand for Speaker of the House on January 6th, but rather I shall remain as a backbencher in this Congress that I so dearly love for approximately six months into the 106th Congress, whereupon I shall vacate my seat and ask my governor to call a special election to take my place. I thank my constituents for the opportunity to serve them. I hope they will not think badly of me for leaving. I thank Alan Martin, my chief of staff, and all of my staff for their tireless work on my behalf. And I thank my wife, most especially, for standing by me. I love her very much. God bless America. Now, you heard there that when Livingston said Clinton should resign, Democrats started shouting, you resign. And Livingston, 
he went ahead and did it. He said, fine, and Bill Clinton, why don't you follow my example? And then I remember reading at the time, and you can hear a couple there in that audio, Democrats suddenly switching on a dime saying, no, no, don't resign. We, we can't let this happen. But they, they just didn't have time to react fast enough to what Livingston had done and change the narrative, flip the narrative to what Jim Wright had said, who was the speaker before Newt Gingrich. We have to get rid of this cancer that's risen up above, that's risen up between us. We have to get rid of this cancer that's risen up between us. Of course, when he gets nailed for corruption, suddenly then that's the time to end all of the sniping and the politics. That's just how that works in politics, or is supposed to. Doesn't seem like many Republicans get that anymore. That night when Livingston stepped down from the race, I'll never forget watching my old tube TV when Brian Williams came on and he had that same dramatic tone as if he was just reporting that Optimus Prime had died on the table in the Transformers, the movie. He said, ladies and gentlemen, dramatic pause, the nation is without a speaker-designate. Tonight, the nation is without a speaker-designate. <gasps> it's so absurd to me, even at the time. I, we can get by. Congress is on vacation all kinds of times. Although I will say, without a speaker right now, it is very worrying that the second person in line for presidential succession, the person after the vice president, is Patty Murray of Washington. I can't imagine her as president, especially since we have the Speaker pro tem of the Senate, which is her role, is the oldest person there in the majority party. So not looking good. There are practical reasons to make sure we have a Speaker of the House. Anyway, Livingston was out. Of course, Clinton didn't resign. Republicans ended up electing Dennis Haster to be Speaker because everybody thought he was an incredibly moral, upstanding guy. Looked like nothing so much as Drew Carey, and he was a wrestling coach, and he certainly looked like a wrestling coach. Of course, yet again, the wisdom of Rush Limbaugh not getting close and being pals with these people and endorsing candidates was proven to be right. It turned out that Dennis Hastert was a reprobate, had been molesting children and abusing his position of trust in schools. Turned out we would have been better, I guess, with Livingston or keeping Gingrich or even Tom Foley, the speaker before Gingrich. I'm sorry, I said Jim Wright. Jim Wright was the speaker that Newt managed to drive out. And then Tom Foley came over after him from Washington. Tom Foley used to steal airline food. He'd go on flights and he would, he would take up unfinished food and take it with him. That seems positively lovely and quaint compared to some of the corruption that we have, and specifically with Dennis Hastert. You executed your listening duties excellently today. Flawlessly, everybody. It fell to Justin Timberlake to bring sexy back was and now it's fallen to us at the new york sun to bring journalism back i hear you scoffing out there but take it from a fellow cynic you will love what you read you will enjoy what you read you'll be informed by what you read you won't be talked down to and let me tell you i worked for somebody who was really smart and in the persuasion business and really informed had great insights in rush limbaugh for many many years and i would not take a job being a political hatchet man at a lot of these places that do political commentary today that look down on their readership only have those clickbait headlines that don't tell you a single thing so please do check it out don't take my word for it go check out nysun.com you don't have to just read me there's plenty of people there to read hopefully we'll have one of them with us here tomorrow in the studio thanks so much for spending this time with me today and i look forward to tomorrow Friday, the end of the week. It's here already. We're going to send you like a rocket ship into the weekend with everything you need to know.
Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Thank you.